Hello, this is Josh Rose from the Next Issue Podcast. Remember, Rise of the Rule Lords uses trademarks and or copyrights owned by Paizo Incorporated, used under Paizo's community use policy. Paizo.com forward slash community use. We are expressly prohibited from charging you to use or access this content. Rise of the Rule Lords is not published, endorsed, or specifically approved by Paizo. For more information about Paizo Incorporated and Paizo products, visit Paizo.com. And remember, don't let the rules rule you. Are you ready to be a master of games and lord of the rules? Then hold on to your butts. It's Rise of the Rule Lords! Hey, it's Pete, your ambivalent and aloof rule lord. I heard you want to be a game master? Alright, well then, come with me. Shh, stay quiet. Then welcome to the club! Here at Forever GM, we cater only to the most attractive and intelligent of players, the Game Master. Here, have a surge. We only tell them that it's out of stock. Game Masters are crucial to playing any tabletop roleplay game and so deserve all the opulence and luxuries of royalty. Here, like our hot tub Olympic pool, the water is all bottled. All this, the glory, the fame, the friends can be yours, but first you have to run a game. Who are these mysterious Game Masters? What do they want? What are their aspirations? What are their dreams? Well, many people wrongly associate the GM with being a god, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Fantasy gods directly interfere with the lives of mortals. They take pleasure in others' pain and decide fate on a whim. But a game master who runs their game like this will soon find themselves with an empty table. The sounds of their players' laughter nothing but a distant memory on the wind. Nothing but a vacant GM screen in the corner. Rather, I like the explanation that the show Harmon Quest uses. The GM is like a computer. It sets challenges, then determines if players succeed or fail based off of the dice rolls. The GM takes on a little bit more by also weaving a story, playing as both villains and allies and controlling the back end of games. In fact, before the idea of even incorporating fantasy into tabletop roleplay games, there used to be war games where the game master was called a referee and that largely remains exactly what they should be today. The GM isn't against the players, and neither should players be trying to beat the GM. Instead, they should be working in tandem with the Game Master arbitrating over the rules, deciding what goes and what doesn't. After all, in a computer game, you're not trying to beat the computer, you're trying to beat the game. You're trying to get to the end of the level, get to the end of the boss fight. The computer is just the medium to which you play the game, and that's exactly the same role as a Game Master. The Game Master sets challenges, they create a story and set up obstacles for the players, but the ultimate role of the Game Master is to make sure that everyone has fun. So what are the rules to being a Game Master? There are none. Well, thanks everybody for coming to another episode of Rise of the Rule Lords. Make sure that you check us out at rulelord2e.com. No, I'm just kidding but only partially. You see, Game Masters have this ultimate power called making stuff up. 
A GM screen might as well be a wall of lies for all the players know, as GMs can play by any or none of the rules that they want. They can create creatures on the fly, set any DC that they wish, and distribute any amount of treasure that they want. Again though, this can be a slippery slope to losing players. Pathfinder 2nd Edition is a game of balance, very measured balance. Rather, those good good developers at Paizo have graciously given us the tools to be able to run that kind of balanced game. While a game master isn't obligated to follow these rules, you'd be a fool to ignore them. After all, can you really claim to have more game design experience than people who do this as a living? These developers have spent years honing their craft, looking at equations, running playtests, putting it through the ringer to make sure that everything that they put out feels fair. Encounters feel as hard as they should at any game given level. DCs are set where both success and failure doesn't feel like you're being cheated, and loot that matches the party where they're at in the game. Even then, even the core rulebook acknowledges that these are more guidelines than actual rules. All that said, I would still say that there is one ultimate rule to being a good game master. You hear it over and over again, whether it's advice for GMs, dungeon masters, keepers, storytellers, and now rule lords. That advice to you is this. Talk to your players. Talk to your players. Please talk to your players. Talk to your players. Talk to your players. Talk to your players. Please. Being a game master is 5% knowledge of the rules, 20% being aware that there are rules, and 15% concentrated power of will. The rest is mostly what my industry calls soft skills, traits that can't be measured just in years of experience. A brand new novice can have them and a veteran of 47 years might have none. It's stuff you have to pick up on your own and practice. It's stuff like time management, group running, personability. They're the key to running a successful game more than any amount of knowledge of the rules, and you'll get better at them by talking to your players. Find out if they're having fun, see if anything needs to be improved or avoided, and if someone has questions or feedback on a call, talk with them about it. The more you talk with them, the more you'll learn, and the more everyone at the table will have fun. So once more, with gusto, talk to your players. All you have to do is talk to your players. Talk to your players. Talk to your players. Talk to your players. Remember, consent is the cornerstone for every ass kicking you're going to hand them along the way. I covered a lot of those in our last episode with that excellent panel of game masters. However, for this one, I'm going to be going over the mechanical aspects. They're still important to running a good game, but again, largely it's all about being aware of them rather than memorizing them. Even for stuff like Grapple, which my players use all the time, I always have Archives of Nethys or Easy Action Tree open to have to look up that it's a Athletics check against a Fortitude DC. So let's work on the part of making you aware of what these rules are. For that, we go to the Hall of Game Mastery. Here we have the six pillars of running a game. Challenges, hazards, environment, encounters, rewards, and story. Or cheers! I just ordered them that way to make it acronym. It's not necessarily in that order that you'll apply them. That'd be more like sick. For <laughs> story, environment, challenges, encounters, hazards, and rewards which is how I'll be going over them. But if an acronym helps you remember, cheers! So let's start with story. The Game Master has two main methods to tell a story, homebrew or pre-written. Homebrew is a story that you construct on your own. That's mostly who these rules are for. The other is pre-written adventures, which Paizo or third-party publishers create for you. 
All you have to do is read a chapter and be ready to play on game day. Both have benefits and drawbacks to consider. Pre-written adventures are easy because creatures, DCs, and loot are all made up for you. More importantly, professional writers have come up with an engaging plot for your characters to feel part of. This will give the party a reason for adventuring, often to solve a problem or prevent disaster. The most responsibility the GM has in this case is to know what is coming up in the story and possibly creating a map whether on a virtual tabletop or a physical map. That said, the biggest issue can be railroading, where the nature of the story means that players have to do X by Y and go from A to B. It can feel confining and doesn't leave a lot of room for you to do other things unless you go off the rails. On the opposite side, homebrew is really popular despite having the most work. GMs have to create their own plot, figure out creatures, set DCs, give out creatures, and do all of that while making sure the group is having fun. If a group doesn't enjoy an adventure path, you can just switch to a different one, but if a group doesn't like your homebrew, you have to fix it. But that's not such a bad thing, it means you can build up your own world, be able to reward your players with stories focused on them, or give them treasure at moments that make them feel special because you know them so well. It's more a matter of what's best for your group and what's easiest for you. If you're someone who can put time into the game, or let's be real, probably none, homebrew might be awesome for you. But if you're like me, you might just have lunch breaks to prepare, in that case reading an adventure path is all that I need to do. Paizo has some very compelling adventures in several forms to do it. Adventure paths are Paizo's bread and butter. This is a long campaign between three and six books that by nature will take months to finish. But that's a lot of content, meaning that you have something to keep your group reliably engaged for a long time. Something like Abomination Vaults is a classic mega dungeon, while Extinction Curse is more world-spanning and has the unique game mechanic of running a circus. If there's a flavor of adventure that you want to go on, chances are Paizo either made one or will. There are also modules, shorter campaigns that will only take you a few weeks to complete. Their limited scope means that you'll get to play more Pathfinder in more ways, and that's personally the option that I prefer. There are also one-shots, story that will take you a few hours to complete. Mainly, these take the form of Pathfinder Society scenarios, but Paizo also publishes one with pre-generated characters in mind. These pre-gens have a backstory prepared and story-relevant builds so your PCs can feel involved in the plot. Pathfinder Society is a subject I'll be covering on its own, but in short, it's Pathfinder everywhere for everyone. Players can make characters, and by following the more strict build rules, can take that character anywhere to any game. You can play in your hometown, then go to the next city over and play there, then go to PaizoCon or GenCon and play the same character there. Because of the more strict rules, it means that there's a very objective way to tell that you've earned the items and level to play at the level that you're on. The scenarios for Pathfinder Society are made to be played in one session, typically four hours, which you can run in your own society play or for fun at your home group. Either way, it's good stuff. If you use pre-written adventures, it's still good to know all of the following rules and the inevitable circumstance that your party veers off from the story. If you're going to go with your own homebrew adventures, these rules will be essential to building your world and adventure. Speaking of world, you need to consider the environment. Yes, recycle your cans and fight the capitalist machine leading us all to climate ruin. But for your game, you need to think about where the players are, and there's a lot to consider. Are you in a cave? How tall is the ceiling? If there's cliffs, how far to the other side? If you're in a desert, how hot is it? 
Paizo made a whole section in Chapter 10 just talking about various environments and their features. If you want to know how to run an avalanche, there's rules for that. If you want to know how much damage might be done from sewer gas, it's there too. It's moderate fire. With various climates, you might combine Table 10-11, Environmental Damage, with Table 10-13, temperature effects. If your players find themselves in a blizzard, which you deem to be around negative zero Fahrenheit, looking at table 10-13, that's severe cold, but deals minor cold damage every hour, which table 10-11 shows deals 1 to 2d6 damage. It's not necessary to go over all those environments here, what's more important to think about is how your players are going to interact with it. A good Pathfinder encounter will have players zipping around everywhere, using the environment to their advantage. One of the primary tools players have to get these advantages is to make a creature flat-footed. Flat-footed is a massive penalty, making a creature take a minus two to their AC. In a game where every single plus one or minus one matters, that's a big deal. Players, and bad guys, can make a creature flat-footed in several ways, but two big ways are with flanking and stealth. Now for all these examples, I'm going to be using players versus monster or bad guy as our point of reference. Paizo uses creature a lot to refer to everything, from players to NPCs to monsters, but that can get a little confusing to say, two creatures on the opposite side of a creature flank the creature, but keep in mind, Anything players can do, you as GM can do too with your monsters. Monsters can flank, percept, sneak, all that stuff. But as we're assuming the role of a game master, let's use that perspective of running the game for our players. For flanking, two PCs minimum need to be on opposite sides of a bad guy. A line should be able to be drawn from the middle of the player character through the monster to the opposite side or corner. The monster is then only flanked to those two players, meaning if a third player joins on a different side, they don't get the bonus to flanking unless they're flanking with another player. Players also need to be able to reach the creature, have melee weapons or have an unarmed attack, and have the ability to act, meaning no conditions prevent you from attacking, like being restrained. Reach weapons count as flanking, so players don't even need to be right next to the creature as long as they can reach them and draw that line on the opposite side. Keep in mind that ranged weapons and spell attacks don't qualify for reach, but a spellcaster can gain the flanking condition by getting into position because they can always use unarmed attacks. Players should primarily be thinking about flanking, but you as GM are going to have to be aware of the minus two penalty from flanking and know the rules well enough to determine if they're flanking or not. What commonly happens is players line up on sides next to each other, like one to the north side of the creature and another to the east side, and assuming because the line can be drawn through the creature that it's being flanked. Nope, opposite sides or corners are pivotal parts of flanking, and don't let them tell you otherwise. Stealth is the more difficult environmental factor because you as a GM need to create a 3D space in a two-dimensional map and the powers of imagination. Every player wants to stealth regardless of their stealth bonus because stealthing is cool. Never mind that they're a dwarf in full plate or are in a brightly lit hallway with no cover. Someone will always want to stealth. So fine, we have to help them out. Creatures can have any of four degrees of detection on them. Observed is the most common, where the player is in full sight or in bright light, and there are no bonuses or penalties applied to them. 
Hidden is when the bad guy knows that the player is there, but not exactly where, and has to make a DC 11 flat check if they are targeting the player with anything other than an area effect, like a 3 action harm. The flat check needs to be made before the attack or spell, because it simulates if the bad guy has a chance of hitting the player at all. If they fail, the action is used up. If they succeed at the flat check, then they can proceed like normal, giving the player another chance to be saved as the attack can still fail to beat the AC or pass DCs. Players can become hidden using the hide action to take cover behind something, like a wall or table, which would also give the player a cover bonus to AC depending on what they went behind. The player could also try to conceal themselves by going into dim light or darkness, or something else that might obscure view like a waterfall or fog. Concealed is another state where the bad guy has to make a DC5 flat check to see if they can target the player. A player being concealed doesn't make the bad guy flat footed, unless that concealment would make the player undetected or unnoticed. Players would probably rather be undetected at minimum, where the bad guy can't see them at all, has no idea where they are, and can't target them. They are also then flat-footed to that player. They can still guess where the player might be, and the GM rolls another DC-11 flat check to see if they can pick the right square by chance. The gold standard is being unnoticed, where the bad guy is blissfully unaware the player is there at all. Notice that none of these make the player invisible. In all these states, except for unnoticed, the bad guy can know the players are there and act accordingly. This isn't Skyrim where you can crouch and suddenly everyone forgets where you were, or Metal Gear Solid where you can hide in a box and everyone gives up after 30 seconds. Only invisibility makes you invisible, granting you automatic undetection. All of these degrees of detection can be combated with a successful seek, where the creature uses a precise sense like vision or imprecise sense like smell or tremor sense to figure out where the player is. In these cases, it's always the monster's perception check versus the stealth DC of the player, and the GM makes that in secret. But even if a player is trying to sneak, that is also the role the GM makes in secret, using the player's stealth modifier against the bad guy's perception DC. What you'll be determining is what kind of cover or detection the player has. The player might start unnoticed, but fail their stealth roll and become observed, hide behind boxes to become hidden, sneak behind more boxes to become undetected, then roll into the cover of darkness to become concealed. Those are a lot of rules for a pretty standard and very common action, but as GM it's important for you to be aware of them and describe the surroundings accordingly so players can figure out what to do. Not every encounter should be in a brightly lit room. There should be dimly lit warehouses with barrels and crates. There should be dark caves with who knows what inside, and foggy forests in the pale moonlight. That mixture of light and cover is ultimately what your players will use to determine what to do. You as a GM need to mentally track where they are, how they're being impacted by the environment, and how that impacts the bad guy's behavior. It's much less important to think about it in terms of player A and B are observed and concealed, and player C is hidden and player D is undetected, and more, player A is seeking. Guard 1 is asleep and doesn't notice. Guard 2 is drunk and isn't paying attention, and the last guard carefully looking but doesn't see player A. The rest of the observation rules will be helpful in determining who is flat-footed and how. And remember, while I talked about all of this in terms of player versus bad guy, all of these rules are things that monsters can utilize against players too. 
I strongly recommend how it's played videos on perception as visual examples can be very helpful when going over something that utilizes vision so much. While stealth is a big deal, sneaking past guards, or more often up to guards to slit their throats, is not the only challenge you should present as a GM. You should also present numerous challenges that players have to overcome, like cliffs or rivers or belligerent NPCs or puzzles or contests or mysteries or 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 or. These challenges are different from battle encounters or hazards as they may not always be life-threatening, but things that the players have to figure out ways to overcome. They can advance the story or put a hold on it entirely until it gets resolved. While some of these challenges may have difficulty classes already set, like the hardness and HP of an iron door, or the climb DC of a hewn stone wall, or the force open DC of a stuck window, all of which are in a useful sidebar of the environmental section of the core rulebook, most challenges will be set by you. Table 10-4, Simple DCs, is good for if you need something just real quick, something the players can probably pass, you just need to have some number on hand just in case. Those numbers are 10 for untrained, 15 for trained, 20 for expert, 30 for master, and 40 for legendary. All those words, untrained to legendary, are called minimum proficiencies. It's a task that can only be accomplished if the character has that level of proficiency or better for that stat. For example, if you have an expert lock, that means that it can only be unlocked by a player that is an expert in thievery. Meaning that a character who's untrained, even if they roll and beat the DC, still can't manage to open that lock. In these particular cases, it doesn't matter that the player rolled and beat the DC, it matters what their proficiency level is. These aren't just roadblocks, they're ways to make certain characters feel special. So for example, if the fighter is able to open the lock, that doesn't make the rogue feel very special. By having this cap, it makes it so that every member of the team is able to specialize in their own special way. It also keeps that team dynamic going, where you don't just have a special, most valuable player. You have a player who's able to do one thing really well, and a player who's able to do another thing very well. Meaning that they all have to rely on each other if they want to complete that quest. While you can throw these minimum proficiencies in wherever you want, it's recommended that you only do so where it's a matter of skill versus luck. If anyone can do it, that's fine to keep it open-ended so that everyone can give it a try. Whereas if it's something that someone would have needed years of experience to be able to do, that's when you can throw proficiency on it. And now it's time to introduce you to your best friend as a game master. Table 10-5, DC by level. What that table does is give you a baseline DC for your players by their level. For example, if you're playing at level 5, a good standard baseline DC is 20. Recall knowledge? DC 20. Climb a wall? DC 20. Earn income? DC 20. It's a DC that should be beatable by just about anyone at that level, but still presents a challenge. So a DC 20 to swim would probably be really easy for an athletically inclined character, but not so much for everyone else. Meanwhile, a DC 20 to convince a barkeep to give up more information will be really easy for those charismatic characters, but the gruffer ones will have a harder time. It also lists the spell levels and DCs to learn a spell or identify magic. In those cases, the DC is set by the spell level. So say that you just saw a spell cause a creature to grow extra limbs and another organ. A DC 26 recall knowledge will help you learn that that's the level 5 grizzly growth spell. If there was one table in this book to tattoo on your arm, this is it. Warning, do not tattoo this to your arm. While a good baseline, the next table 10-6 
DC Adjustments is great for making adjustments to DCs. And Easy Task might be less challenging than the standard DC 20, so subtract 2 to make it a DC 18. Or this might be a very belligerent barkeep, so add the very hard adjustment of plus 5 to make the DC to persuade DC 25. The adjustments are incredibly easy, minus 10. Very easy, minus 5. Easy, minus 2. Hard, plus 2. Very hard, plus 5. Incredibly hard, plus 10. Proficiencies can also be added, but there are ceilings to make sure players can accomplish them at all. Parties less than 2nd level should never have expert level challenges. Less than 6th level should not have master challenges, and 14th or less shouldn't have legendary challenges. One thing to note, for several challenges, the GM makes secret rolls. These are rolls the GM makes for the player using the player's associated modifier. These checks are intended to prevent something called metagaming, where the player has knowledge that the character wouldn't. If you let a player roll a knowledge check and they roll a 1, the player will know what you tell them is wrong, even though the character shouldn't be able to know that what they know is wrong, you know? Then the player might have their character act in a way that's contrary to what the character would do with the knowledge that they're supposed to have. And that's metagaming. When your player realize that the cockatrice paralyze, that's metagaming. If the player react with a vert gaze, not attack, that's metagaming. And just like how you didn't want that song, you also don't want players to metagame. The most common actions a GM will make in secret are to hide and to sneak to see if a player is noticed by a creature, to sense motive, a perception roll versus the creature's deception DC, lying, which is the player's deception modifier versus the creature's perception DC, and recalling knowledge and identifying magic. When recalling knowledge to identify a creature, a success grants the players the creature's name and its most well-known attribute and a critical success grants you something a little bit more subtle, like weaknesses or reactions. In all other ways, the recall knowledge action works just like how it's normally described, which we'll go over in another episode. Now it's time to build an encounter, but first, let's take a brief trip to the Where's Wizard. Ah, my favorite customer! I see you've gained a little experience since you were last here. I know that look, it's the look of an intellectual, a creature of culture, a seeker of knowledge, a glutton for edification. Well then, I have a resource for you. Sit, for sivraka. Here, through this portable portal is the archives of Nethys the greatest and most complete compendium of Pathfinder knowledge in the world. The archives contain every single rule, stat, item, and creature that has ever been written by Paizo. So great is this partnership that when the books are released for public consumption, all the materials are released for free on the archives of Nethys on the same day, including Errata. With their latest update, it's even more useful with the ability to filter out keywords, levels, or anything else listed on tables, like for equipment or creatures. It can also apply weak and elite adjustments to monsters, giving you more versatility when making your encounters. The Archives is a tool every aspiring GM should have bookmarked for easy use 
and is a great resource for people wanting access to the rules but haven't yet bought any books here. Conveniently available on your small portable electronic devices at 2e.aonprd.com. Before you go, I want to thank Dan Coleman, Tyler D, Alex, Cody, Casey, Ian, Jennifer, Omen Podcast, and Ryan for their Patreon support. A final thank you to all our untrained patrons too. This will be the last episode under the Cool Rulebook special to get a show shoutout. But to each of you, no matter what level of support, you help this podcast. So a final thanks to Antonio, Austin, Deadly D8, Dennis, Emmeline, Mando, Jay Tuttle, Jeremy, and Josh. Remember, even though this special is ending, any patron at any level can submit a community use policy voiceover to play at the start of an episode, like what Josh Rose did. Thank you, Josh. This is also the last planned endorsement for the podcast. If you want to have me, the Wes Wizard, chill your Pathfinder or system neutral product, such as dice, Kickstarters, podcasts or streams, or a YouTube channel, send an inquiry to rulelord2e at gmail.com. I'm cheap and easy. All right, time to go. Just make sure that you close that portal completely or else... Oh, oh, oh no! Pathfinder is a very balanced game, and that's especially true for building encounters. As you look at Table 10-1, Encounter Budget, know first and foremost that those threat levels are accurate, regardless of the level that you're playing at. A trivial encounter is going to be super easy, while an extreme encounter will almost certainly result in dead players. I mean, dead characters, of course. If not a total party kill, known as a TPK. The math is very tight to accommodate the critical role system, meaning that every plus one on an attack or a minus two to a stat has big implications, so please follow these encounter building rules. Don't think that you can just throw a troll, a level 5 creature, at your level 1 party because it sounds fun. It won't be when a single creature destroys the hard work that your players put into building their characters. So the first thing that you need to do when building an encounter is to figure out your average party level. If you're a GM that values your time and well-being, you're probably using milestone leveling where all the players level up at a certain point when an achievement has been met, be it at the end of a dungeon or reaching a new plot point. All the pre-written adventures by Paizo include descriptions of where players should be leveling up in the adventure, typically at the conclusion of a chapter. However, you can also have your players level up by experience points. This is a totally valid and rewarding way to run your games, but it makes your job as GM a little bit more difficult if you run a true XP system, where only players that show up or accomplish something get rewarded. For example, a player that shows up to every game might be at level 6, while a couple who usually show up but sometimes miss out because of their family commitments might be at level 5. And a final person with a chaotic work schedule who shows up when they can will be behind the curve at level 4. The players who are there most frequently level up faster because they have more chances to get experience points than the player who has to miss every once in a while. So now because they're all at different levels, you need to find the average of all those levels as a baseline. In this case, 6 plus 5 plus 5 plus 4 divided by 4 sets the average party level at 5. So, Algebra, baby! These encounters may feel tougher for the level 4 player and a little easier on the level 6 player, 
but at least it won't be too much for them either way. With your player baseline, you need to think of what kind of encounter you're building. Table 10-1 has five threat levels. Trivial, low, moderate, severe, and extreme. Each one gives you a XP budget. For instance, a moderate encounter has an XP budget of 80. Players level up at every 1000 XP, but even if you do use milestone leveling, this 1000 XP is a good total to use when developing your game at each particular level. Think of it like a bank account, and you can only spend as much as you have. So with 1000 XP, we could run 12 moderate encounters or six extreme encounters, or 25 trivial encounters. But really it's best to have a mix, with extreme being used very, 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 very infrequently. Severe encounters are perfectly good for boss battles, or encounters with lots of monsters. Extreme should really be reserved for the big bad, and even then only with a fully rested and stocked party. Now the math of these encounter budgets account for four players, so if you have more or less, table 10-1 provides an XP adjustment. So say that you have six players and you want to run a moderate encounter. You would get to add 40 extra XP to the budget, accounting for 20 for each extra player above four. Now your XP budget for a moderate encounter is 120, which would be the same budget for an extreme level encounter for a party of four. This adjustment can be used in reverse too, and is useful even for pre-written adventures. If you have a four-player group and someone calls out six but three is still a quorum, moderate encounters are going to feel a little bit more difficult than they would with the full group, so you might adjust the encounter to be a little bit easier. With an understanding of how the budget works, we can now look at table 10-2, creature XP and roll, and compare that with the creature levels in the bestiaries we're using. Notice next to each monster on the bestiary is a creature level. So for example, that troll that I mentioned earlier is level 5. How that number relates to your average party level will determine the cost of the creature for your XP budget. So using our party level of 5, we can see that a level 5 creature, the same level as our party, costs 40 XP of our 80 XP budget for a moderate encounter. So we could buy two trolls and we'd be done. An important consideration isn't just the XP budget though, it's also the action budget. You as a GM will have 6 actions with 2 trolls, while a party of 4 will have 12 actions between them. There's nothing wrong with this, especially if you don't mind the battle being pretty quick. But you can have a more dynamic encounter by mixing less high level creatures with more low level creatures. So say that we want one troll, we can also add two level 3 creatures, each of which would cost 20 XP to fill that remaining 40 XP of our budget. So we could give the troll to troll hounds as pets. We could also say that the troll has a potted assassin vine and also an animated statue it didn't even realize came to life at loud noises. And then the statue goes on and attacks both players and the troll. Heck, we could even go further and have one troll having somehow conscripted an earth, fire, ice, and dust method, all of which are level 1 creatures and only cost 10 XP. So now we have 5 creatures against 4 players. A very dynamic battle, while still having a very moderate feel because the method should go down pretty quickly, but not before making the players sweat a little bit with their individual element attacks. Another consideration is that creatures can have weak or elite adjustments placed on them, lowering or raising their level by one respectively. 
These rules can be found at the start of Bestiary 1. It's a good tool to have if you have a specific creature in mind, but it doesn't quite meet your XP budget. For instance, if you wanted to make the PCs fight two owl bears, but have them feel like a moderate encounter, you could make them elite owl bears, raising them from level 4 to level 5 creatures. Or if you wanted them to fight a dragon, but even a young blue dragon is level 9, you could apply the weak adjustment to make it level 8, and therefore a severe encounter instead of an extreme one. To make a creature elite, raise the AC, attack modifiers, DC saving throws, perception, and skill modifiers by 2 then increase the damage and offensive abilities by 2 as well. Finally, adjust the HP based on its starting level. So in this case, owlbears as level 4 creatures would increase their HP by 15. You would do the exact opposite for weak adjustments. The archives of Nethys can automatically change creature stat blocks to elite or weak, so don't worry about memorizing those adjustments. It also has a useful filter feature so that when you're trying to look for creatures to have for an encounter, you can sort it by level, by type, or anything else that you can think of. To run a combat encounter, first you need to set the scene. Where are the players? Did they just walk through a door and interrupt two bad guys talking, or did they sneak up to them in a cave? Are there obstacles that can help, like barrels for cover, corners of darkness, detours to go around and flank? When you think players are ready to get involved, you'll have them roll for initiative! The cool thing about Pathfinder 2 is initiative can be anything. Typically, perception is the default, which makes sense. It's how quickly someone notices what's going on around them relative to everyone else. However, you can also let the players give a case for why they want to roll something else for initiative, or you can make a call for something different. For instance, you might have a player wanting to roll stealth because they're sneaking, or you might have characters on a sharp incline and have them roll acrobatics for initiative to see how well they keep their balance. Having dynamic initiatives will let players who are better at certain tasks shine when they might not otherwise, keeping them engaged. After you roll initiative, keep track of the order of people's rolls with something like the combat tracker app that Paizo made, or just writing it on a piece of paper. Each round resets when the first creature that rolled the highest initiative starts again, and each round lasts for 6 seconds for the purpose of keeping track of timed effects. So essentially an effect that lasts for a minute will last for 10 rounds. It's also important to note that typically players and creatures don't gain reactions until after their first turn begins, so a fighter with attack of opportunity wouldn't be able to use it even if the enemy met all the criteria of getting hit by that reaction. Everyone also gets one reaction per round and gets it back at the start of their next turn. GMs can determine if you want to give reaction access to your players or creatures before the start of their turn for whatever reason. Another aspect of a creature stat block to be aware of is that if it has plus action, typically plus grab, after a damage roll, that does not mean that you get it for free. You can make the grab action, but grab is a single action, so you have to have an action economy to do it. So if you miss on your first two attacks, then miraculously hit on the third attack that has plus grab on it, you will not be able to use that grab. The final consideration is that once a creature, not a player, hits zero hit points, they're dead. 100% dead. The only exception is if a player hit them with a non-lethal attack. They can do this very easily with most weapons by taking a minus two circumstance penalty to their attack roll, or by using something with the non-lethal trait, like a fist. 
Keep in mind, not every encounter needs to be combat. In fact, that can get pretty boring quickly for some groups. Social encounters are a totally viable way to give out XP and should be considered in your overall budget just like any other encounter. NPCs also have levels and stats, so you can plan encounters just like normal but then run them either freeform or with some roles in initiative order. These encounters are more centered around roleplay but may have players roll diplomacy, deception, or intimidation roles as needed. First see what they describe themselves doing, and then see if that changes an NPC's demeanor. Pathfinder has attitude conditions from hostile to helpful that successful roles can help change. But just like how a critical role in stealth doesn't make someone invisible, crit role in a social encounter doesn't work like mind control, making them instantly complacent. Even helpful, the best social condition, only requires that a character wishes to actively aid, but won't accept requests that might hurt their own goals or quality of life. In fact, not every seemingly combat encounter needs to end in combat. That troll that we talked about earlier with the potted plant? That's just a humble gardener wanting to tend to their plants in peace. It'll defend itself if provoked, but if your players manage to find a creative solution like complimenting the troll's plants or giving it a trowel, reward them with the same XP as if they had fought the encounter. Creative solutions can be just as fun, if not more, than fighting. Hazards are an important part of encounter building and also need to be considered in your XP budget. Like creatures, hazards have level and XP, but there are two kinds of hazards to consider. Complex hazards are more mechanical or magical and can repeat their reaction until disabled or escaped from. You'll note that generally, complex hazards cost the same XP as creatures do relative to party level. These are things like quicksand, poison darts, or summoning runes. Simple hazards only react once and have to be reset to work again, like pits spear launchers, or mold. Simple traps cost significantly less than complex traps. So for the same cost of a spinning blade pillar, you could have five scythe blades in a room. Hazards all follow a routine and usually get a reaction that they can use as soon as they're activated. Complex traps have the added effect of rolling stealth for initiative and can run their routine again once it's their turn again. To notice a hazard, a PC has to roll Perception to Seek against the hazard's stealth DC, which is again 10 plus its modifier. Some traps may be so obvious that a player's own Perception DC is more than the stealth DC of the trap, in which case they could notice it instantly if you so choose. Each hazard can be disabled somehow, either using disabled device, counteracting with a spell, or simply smashing it. Players that make the right check to disable it will simply make it cease functioning and won't have the trap react on them. Players may also be able to bypass it entirely if they figure out a clever way to do that. However, if players choose to go right to it and try to destroy it, hazards have three additional factors to their AC and HP, being hardness, the broken threshold, and triggers. Hardness is a type of damage reduction for objects, where if an attack successfully lands against the AC, the hardness will take away whatever damage is dealt by the hardness value. For instance, if a player does 8 damage to a hazard with 6 hardness, only 2 damage will be dealt to the HP of the hazard. BT, or Broken Threshold, is the minimum amount where the hazard can no longer function, but it could still be repaired until it gets to 0 HP. Unless stated, nothing else besides the normal effects of the broken condition happen once the broken threshold is reached, so it will still have hardness, the same remaining HP, etc. 
the trap could also trigger again outside of its normal reactions and routine. So hitting an electric latch rune may trigger the electrocution reaction even though the trigger is different. A nice combo of setting, challenges, encounter, and hazards can make for an engaging encounter. But what's all that adventure good for without reward? XP is the first form of reward that you'll give to players unless you do milestone leveling. Table 10-8 XP Awards lists the experience points to award against adversaries and hazards as well as accomplishments. So when they cross a rushing river, you may determine that's a major accomplishment and award them the accompanying 80 XP. You should also award your players with hero points each session. These can come from accomplishing moderate or major accomplishments, or whenever you feel like they did something heroic, like sparing the life of an enemy, going out of their way to help another player, or putting themselves at risk to help an innocent. It's all your call, but a good metric is about one hero point per hour of gameplay. But what your players really want is money baby loot! Table 10-9, Party Treasure by Level, gives you a good breakdown of how you can distribute treasure in a balanced way. Typically, you should either use the lump sum of gold or go with the stated permanent and consumable items and remaining gold. So for level five, we could give the players a stash of 1,350 gold pieces, either spread around a dungeon or in one big treasure chest. We could also buy items and subtract it from the sum. But if you're gonna do that, you might as well save yourself some trouble and use the permanent and consumables column. At level five, you could give the player two sixth level items and two eighth level items, as well as two sixth level consumables, two fifth level consumables, and two fourth level consumables, with a remaining sum of 320 gold. Like creatures, items have level two. Nothing prevents a lower level player from using a higher level items, but for balance purposes, Items around the party's level won't break the game. Please note that items are included in the math for level difficulty. So if you never give your players the opportunity to improve their weapons with a striking rune, or let them buy better armor, or find wands, they're going to have a more difficult time going forward. While permanent items are very cool, like better weapons, cool wearable magic items, consumables are just as important. Consumables can only be used once, but aren't always potions of healing or antidotes. They're oils, tokens, talisman, munitions, and scrolls that can give your party temporary boosts. If you're starting your characters at higher levels, there's a table for that too. Table 10-10, Character Wealth, gives you a mix of permanent items and remaining currency, or a lump sum that you can grant players. This will give them appropriate golden items for that character level as though they'd been on the adventure the entire time! Now I know what you're wondering, what are my players going to do with all that gold? Can they really find a flaming, raging, poisoning sword of doom in a small hamlet of 50 people? There's a small, itty bitty sentence in the Game Mastery Guide that gives you an idea of what a settlement's level will be, which is also roughly the level of items players would be able to find by shopping around. Verbatim, a village is usually level 0 to 1, a town level 2 to 4, a city level 5 to 7, and a metropolis 8 or above. Although the presence of many higher level or wealthy residents could easily skew the level of a village, town, or city upwards. But of course, there's nothing quite like finding an incredibly powerful item on the corpse of a big boss or waiting for the players in a dragon horde. 
That's why some items have rare, unique, or just uncommon traits on them. These may be good items to restrict players from being able to shop around for, and better for leaving as loot for them to discover. Again, it's all up to you. Cheers! You're now ready to start an adventure and get your players playing. Check out our last episode with Quinn Murphy, Aubrey Knotts, and Vanessa Hoskins for a discussion about some of the soft skills to being a GM. It's a great source of advice for any GM no matter what your level. There are also several YouTubers and podcasters giving advice for keepers, storytellers, overseers, and yes, the humble dungeon master. That can be just as useful for your role as a Pathfinder 2e game master. I want to leave you with a couple additional pieces of advice I've gathered over the years. First, just don't run an evil campaign. I've only seen one successfully done. That was by Dimension 20's Escape from the Blood Keep, where the players played characters that were basically on Sauron's side from Lord of the Rings. Names and some other setting parts were changed. And that's mostly because they kept good humor, didn't betray each other, and didn't go into extremes. It was campy and it was fun. The biggest change was a collective motivation from saving the world to rebuilding a crown to revive the Dark Lord. But that's a very hard balance to do, and it's just best to avoid it. Also keep player versus player to a minimum. Stealing items, rolling saves against each other, and combat are things players should be doing to bad guys, not each other. The less you have to deal with interpersonal conflict of your party, let alone the players, the better your game will run. Also, you are empowered to kick bad people out of your game. If someone keeps crossing lines your group established, won't respond to feedback, and is making the group miserable, just kick them out. Whatever your relationship is with them, it's going to be more trouble to keep someone like that around than hoping something will happen to them that gets them to suddenly change. It is hard, there's no easy way to do it, but know it's a legitimate tool to keep your game running smoothly. All these problems and more can be combated with that first and most important rule. Talk to your players. Just talk to your players. Talk to your players. Just talk to your players. Just talk to your players. And players, I have two requests of you for your Game Master. First, know your character, please. We're trying to deal with enough stuff without also having to know your stats, what your spells do, and all of that stuff. Be familiar with the feats that you choose, the spells that you prepare, and be ready to describe what those things do when you're ready to use them. Second, just pay attention and be ready when it comes to your turn. This doesn't mean that you have to blurt out your actions within six seconds, like, oh, I'm gonna stride, then I'm gonna strike, then I'm gonna stride again. You can still embellish what you plan to do and all of that stuff. It just means that when it comes to your turn, don't be the person who's like, hmm, ah, uh, her, what spells do I have? What am I gonna do? Hey, did anyone get hurt? It shows that you're not paying attention and not really stay engaged in the action that your GM's prepared for you. It's as annoying as when those people who are in fast food lines just wait until they get to the cashier before they even look at the menu to decide what they're doing. It holds up the action for everyone else, and it's really annoying, not just for your game master, but for fellow players as well. Finally, I'm going to insert a little bit of a personal preference, and I can do that because it's my podcast. Players, I ask that you please be flexible with your Game Masters. I know that you love to come up with these awesome backstories, and that is really cool. It can especially be awesome in homebrew campaigns where your GM has a lot more flexibility in where to take the party. 
However, it can be very limiting, especially when you're working from a pre-written adventure. If we're playing a game in the Mwangi Expanse and you say that you're a barbarian from Numeria and that you were part of the White Wolf tribe and then the Grey Skulls attacked and then they took your parents and you were fighting the evil lord Zebzeb, well, now I either have to find a way to bring the whole campaign up to Numeria, or I have to find a way to bring those bad guys from Numeria down to the Mwangi Expanse. That's just one example, and maybe there are some game masters who find that to be really easy. But myself, I find that there's not a lot of good ways to do that without completely derailing the rest of the campaign. Rather, I have a preference that when you come up with a backstory, give me five things. Five open-ended sentences that I'm able to play around with. For example, you could say, Lost a family heirloom. Trying to find my wife. Bad guy killed my entire village. On a quest to locate a lost mentor. Well, hey, guess what? I can work with all of those things. Hey, look in this dragon loot. This is a really cool sword. Oh, it's your family heirloom. And it talks. Who's that inside? Oh, well that just happens to be the soul of your tribe's biggest hero, who's now ready to mentor you to become a better fighter. Oh, and this bad guy that I had at the end of chapter 8? Well, that's also the person who destroyed your whole tribe and you're able to get your revenge, and they also happen to be holding your wife in one of the dungeon areas. Because of those open-ended elements that are still part of your character, I was able to find ways that I could put you into the story so that you don't just feel like you're playing a game, but you're part of the game. Giving us that flexibility lets us find ways to incorporate you more naturally. And who knows, you might even be surprised at how much you love the result. Before we go, it's time for Ruler Ruling! If you or your group is having trouble understanding a rule or has an argument that needs settling, let me know on Twitter with the hashtag RuleLord and tagging me at RuleLord2E. Court is now in session. On our docket today, the great god Abadar asks, Can a creature under the effect of a second level animal form use the escape or athletic skill action with the attack trait? Similarly, a tune a wizard asks, Can you use fighter feats when you don't require a specific held weapon? like power attack while in wild shape. Great questions! I'll give my ruling after some housekeeping. First off, thanks for your patience with this episode. It's later than I thought, and that's on me and some stuff that I'm working on. I'm really trying to release these on a schedule. It's just been hard finding the right groove. Secondly, thank you to everyone following me on Twitter, Patreon, and subscribing to whatever podcatcher you use. Just remember, if there's a review section, give the pod some kind words. It really does help the pod for stupid computer algorithmic reasons, but they also brighten up my day whenever I see them. Also, big thanks to Drew of Team Player Gaming, Gustav of Gust, Elijah from Deadly D8, Jason of What Do You Do, Steve of DM Steve, Charlie of Omencast, Chris of Scald's Tale Entertainment, Dave of How It's Played, Tyler from Minmaxed, and Tommy from Black Dragon Gaming for sending me your voice clips for the episode. Finally, because this is the GM episode, I know some people learn better by observing than just hearing rules. So I wanted to endorse some Pathfinder 2e actual play podcasts. As a warning, I haven't listened to them because that's not the kind of show that I enjoy. So I can't speak for any of the content or views espoused by anyone that goes to the dark side. That said, they are often recommended. 
active and so far I have seen no reason to think that they're bad. If I missed your podcast, I'm so sorry. There's a lot and I can only say so much, but I'm happy to plug your podcast with the Where's Wizard if you send me an email at rulelord2e at gmail.com to go over sponsorship opportunities. To start, Dice Will Roll is reportedly the gayest Pathfinder podcast on the planet, currently playing Extinction Curse and formerly running Kingmaker and Doomsday Dawn. Minmaxed is a Minnesota-based group that's played Fall of Plague Stone, Extinction Curse, and their own homebrew Mithril Dragon Wagon. Knights of Last Call is a group of friends running a converted Rise of the Rune Lords campaign for 2nd edition. While I don't watch the actual play, I do enjoy their episodes of Nightlife, a roundtable discussion show that they do about various topics. The Makers Misfits is a group of lifelong friends and people of color currently playing Extinction Curse. Tabletop Gold is running Abomination Vaults with their group of five friends. Great production quality and I like that they take time to not just play the game, but also explain the rules for people new to Pathfinder. Goblins and Gays is another LGBTQ podcast running their own homebrew rule in Pathfinder 2 rules. And nearly done! What's next for them? Follow them to find out! Sage Tower Games is also running Age of Ashes on Twitch. Dragon Punch Squad is running Age of Ashes and is a maker of fine Pathfinder memes. Find the Path Ventures is running a converted Hell's Rebels campaign, which I'm also doing in my home group, so that's cool to see. There's also bigger channels like Roll for Combat, Glass Cannon, Two Perception, Dragons and Things, Waffles Maple Syrup, yes, really, and No Directions Valiant, and of course Paizo's own shows like Knights of the Everflame and The Secrets of Magic Live Play. There are probably dozens more streams. Podcasts that I haven't heard about are ones playing Pathfinder 1st Edition. Again, I'm sorry if I missed you! But if you, listener, want to find out more, go to What Do You Do on Twitter, where they manage a very comprehensive list of Pathfinder and Starfinder podcasts and streams. Now for my ruling. Those animal form spells both contain a key sentence. One or more unarmed attacks specific to the battle form you choose, which are the only attacks you can use. So I'm sorry, but other actions with the attack trait like power attack or escape aren't available while you're in bear, frog, shark, or any other forms just the attack listed. The main reason for this is so that you can gain access to the special traits only available in those forms like speed or poison, that spellcasters who usually take these spells have access to better melee abilities, while fighter or barbarians are plenty proficient in using melee attacks on their own without turning into a bear. Are you ready to run a game? Visit rulelord2e.com to find other ways to listen. Visit Patreon and find me on Twitter. Let me know on Twitter if this episode helped you want to be a Pathfinder Game Master. And remember to leave a review if you found the podcast helpful to learning Pathfinder. Join us next time as we go over basic actions available to everyone. But until next session, don't let the rules rule you. Rule you.